The Fed is still jawboning about inflation and talking as tough as it possibly can. Many market sages are following suit by making dire predictions of our current inflation's intractability. But Weiss's Jordi Visser is looking at things very differently, and he's beginning to use the term deflation as he articulates his analysis. I'm G3, and on this episode of Green Marbles, Jordi and I are going to talk about the recent data he's seeing on growth, inflation, and debt, and why, in his view, we aren't headed into a 1970s-style period anytime soon. So please, stick around for this one, and make sure to check out important disclosures at the end of the episode. And with that, welcome. Hello, Jordi. Great to see you again. Let's get right into it here. At the beginning of the year, you anticipated structurally higher inflation for a period of time where you said bonds would be uninvestable. However, you also said that over the intermediate term, you have been and you will continue to be a deflationista. And while I don't think that you have used that term in your recent webinar, it does seem clear to me from that webinar, your tweets and the things showing up in the morning seeds, that deflation is very much top of mind for you. Can you talk about what you're seeing that has led you to dust off your deflationary mantra? There's a lot of times when I think the way I approach markets, when I start with the basis of what are the narratives versus what do I think is the most likely outcome? And then I look for divergences between what I'm hearing and what appears to be happening. And for the structural side of deflation and why a deflationista definitely defines me, until these powerful forces change, and those powerful forces are very straightforward, I think people have heard them. I think they've forgotten them just because of the inflation data that we've seen, which to me is not transitory in the way that it was defined last year, but it's definitely not structural. <laughs> Debt, demographics, exponential innovation. So not innovation, but exponential innovation. And I think a new one that we'll probably talk more about over the rest of the year, because I do think it's important. I think it fits dramatically into this equation of why we have inflation and that is exponential innovation leading to now longevity. So we've dealt with innovation for businesses and for individuals at home, but now for medical, healthcare, solving things like cancer, we're at a very different stage. And if anything, COVID sped that up, which in my opinion actually is one of the driving forces behind why we actually have inflation. So things are happening now that are to me almost eerily similar to why we have inflation now. Meaning, if we go through the history of why we actually have inflation right now, to me, and you go back to COVID as opposed to people talking about things like labor shortages and things, which were already trending that way anyway, I believe that this simply was low rates, too much money printed, people being able to buy what they want, and not enough people to supply those goods, and it was out of balance. We're finally ending covid because China's finally out. But I think this had a lot to do with that two-year period. And now we're starting to see the signs of we printed a lot of money. I asked people two years ago, how much money has to be printed before you turn positive? 
if you print money, we can get out of any deflationary situation. And we proved that. Now the question is, how high do rates have to go before you remember the world is filled with debt and zombies? You just teased something very interesting there, and I want to double-click on that, if I could use that cliche. You said that exponential innovation specifically relating to longevity is something that you are going to be on the lookout for. What are you getting at there? So one of the reasons we haven't talked about longevity on the podcast is not because it's not something that I spend a lot of time on. It's Web 3.0 has been really interesting. The current markets can't be more interesting than they are in terms of people talking about things that haven't happened in a long time. But if you go back to the depths of COVID, the worst parts, and you take us into why the Fed lowered rates and basically did the amount of QE they did, at the same time the government ended up printing money, giving it out to people, telling people they didn't have to pay their debt. If you go back to that, why did they do so much? Why? Plain and simply, we didn't know how long we'd be in the pandemic, which by definition means we were fading or shorting the innovation on technology for messenger RNA and the vaccines. If it wasn't for the vaccines, we'd still be in a pandemic. Use China as an example, who doesn't have messenger RNA, and they still have lockdowns. The fact that we printed that much money was a bet on how long it would take. And if you remember at the time, I think they were saying we had never had a vaccine go from beginning of analyzing until getting it to the market in mass scale in, say, four years, something Some like that. Some very long period of yeah. time, which was scary as could be. And it happened so quickly that by November, it was a positive force on the markets. So the markets went up. We created an enormous amount of net worth at the same time M2 was gone. So in the end, the inflation was created by technology's ability to get a vaccine combined with the amount of money that was printed. But let me just be even more precise. What you are saying is the mRNA technology essentially helped fuel inflation. Absolutely, 100%. Because we didn't know how much money was necessary to either have a mild recession there's nobody who expected. You just go back to the forecast. In fact, last year, The Economist, the economic forecast for The Economist out on the street, the average number was for 2.3 or 2.4% inflation for the end of this year. That was a year ago. So economists don't know anything about what the future is going to be on inflation. And that's why right now, with growth slowing, with money supply <laughs> negative over the last two months, personal disposable income negative for the year so far – why are people not worried about deflation? I just want to get back to this green marble here for a minute because it's a really interesting thing that you're saying. I'm guessing, and maybe you know, I'm guessing that when Powell was in the depths of this period, he did not have the ability to consult his internal team of infectious disease experts, right? <laughs> they had no idea. He called up a guy he probably yeah. knew, right? And said, how long is this going to take? Yeah. When you take the global economy and stop it, there were yeah. many people that we were talking about so many people being killed. And again, they did not know when a vaccine would come out. So the technology did not offset the amount of money that was printed. What's offsetting with the amount of money that's printed is a combination of inflation going higher and rates going higher. All right. Well, moving on from that really interesting point that you've made there, you have talked recently about the money supply. Can you elaborate a bit on why you've been so fixated on that? I have a hard time 
with people talking about inflation, but not at least going through the helicopter money. So we always said if there was helicopter money, that that would lead to inflation. Okay, so then let's go through the numbers and actually figure it out. So I'm going to go back and just use 2010 to 2019 as a baseline. So from 2010 to 2019, M2 grew by about $6.5 trillion. Nominal GDP, the total sum, including inflation, of all dollars transacted, grew by $6.3 trillion. So almost a dollar for dollar, meaning M2 grew by $6.5 trillion and nominal GDP grew by $6.3 trillion. Well, in the two years, 20 and 21, M2 grew in the United States by $6 trillion. So same amount in two years. Yeah. And nominal GDP, again, including the transactions of volumes of goods and the inflationary side, through June, it will be up approximately, and I say approximately because we don't have the second quarter GDP number, but as of now, we've spent about $3.7 trillion of it, and by the end of the year, assuming everything is the same, we will have spent about $4.2 trillion. So inflation is here because we printed so much. Now, in hindsight, if we knew about the vaccine, maybe we only would have printed $2.5 trillion or $3 trillion. But it was a bet on how long the vaccine would take to turn the things. And it was clearly too much money. So at 4.2, the good news is for people who are positive is there's still $1.8 trillion left of the cash that has not been spent. The problem is right now, money supply the last two months is negative, slightly negative. So we've gone from acceleration and massive growth to where it's zero now. And that's the point about why people should remember the debt deflation story, because this is not the 1970s. It is a very different situation because of those four things that did not exist in the same way during the 70s. Demographics was not an issue back then. Median age of a person in the United States was 28. Currently, it's 39. We didn't have personal computers in our home, and we certainly didn't have an iPhone. Artificial intelligence was nowhere. I don't have to go through all of the things that are real that will reassert themselves in the coming years. Once we get through this temporary gouging of money into the economy, which I thought would take three to five years to work through the six trillion with higher than expected inflation. But if you move rates to the degree that we have, the forces of deflation will start to show themselves because people will get scared because all of the things involving debt and demographics are real and they're out there and they're showing their hand on the zombies. What are some of those green marbles you're seeing about the so-called forces of deflation, as you put it, that is showing that the pendulum is poised to shift? Well, the Fed funds rate is currently only 1.75%. Before they started raising rates this year, it was a quarter of 1%. In January, the expectation is that they would do three tightenings to put us somewhere around 1% at the end of the year. Now we're expected for them to go to 3.5%. Above the 10-year yield. Above where the 10-year yield is now, right. correct. And that's why so many people are bearish on bonds. That's why so many people are, are focused, I think, to some degree on the inflation side. And the reason is because most people I talk to are positioned 
to be short bonds and believe that the inflation is not going away quickly. The debt situation, and again, 1970s, global debt was about 100% of GDP. So this is a global situation. I want to bring that up because Italy's part of the story here, and we've already seen the ECB talk about this. Debt to GDP of the globe was 100% in the 1970s. Now it's 256%. So the marbles that are showing up are mortgage rates in the U.S. 30-year fixed rate mortgage got above 6%. The last year it closed above 6% was over 20 years ago. That means that there's no more refis happening. We've seen that in the numbers. But also if you sell a home and you have a mortgage at you know only 2% and then you go buy a new home and you take a mortgage out, your mortgage going to be 6%. So you're going to have a slowdown in the housing market, which has happened. And now we're seeing the surveys and everything break down. One of the reasons I thought inflation would be here longer, one of the driving forces was the fact that we were not prepared structurally from a supply chain basis to deal with a dramatic shift in housing that was spurred on by people moving out of cities because of fears of COVID. Well, now you've moved mortgage rates up, which is going to make it more difficult for those people to move out of the cities where there's more crime, where there's fears over of lockdowns and having a house is a lot better. People wanted space. Well, now it's getting harder to do that. And so that has changed. And we've seen the housing market data break down. Italy, their five-year yields went up to the highest level since 2013. Italy was basically part of the issue that was a threat to break up the EU back in the 2010 to 2012 period. So that's one of the places. They can't have yields up at these levels. So the ECB last week said that they would talk about fragmentation and have an emergency meeting to figure out how to deal with this. That is the type of stuff that you would expect to have happen is that rates are getting up to levels that are a problem. And I'll just throw one more. I've shown this chart on the webinars that I've done for the past two months We now have IG seven-year yields, so investment-grade seven-year yields, up at 5%. You go back and look at where the average coupon is for these companies. These companies are always on people's radars in terms of corporates that have debt. Almost all of these companies with massive amounts of debt have been disrupted by technology companies who don't have debt. So you're left with these old economy companies that have a lot of debt. And now what you've said is, hey, you guys have survived over the last 10 years of exponential innovation by rates going lower, which is the benefit of technology driving inflation lower. Oh, now we're going to move rates higher. So when you guys have to refinance your debt, think of companies like GE, AT&T, go through the list of people that have a lot of debt and can't compete with a lot of these technology companies you're left with a situation where eventually this will be a problem. So they can't do this because you're going to have then a credit situation. Right. So much in the same way that you've described how the ECB blinked, I think what you are hinting at is that the Fed, in your view, at some point is going to be forced to blink. Let's put it this way. I don't think we can build any more tightenings into the market at this point because spreads are widening at the same time. And if spreads are widening, which is what's happening, it's getting away from them. And so I believe there is more risk of not just a recession, but of deflationary forces to start to take off because the commodities are now falling too. CRB, raw spot industrials, I tweeted about this week. They've had the, I think it's fourth or fifth biggest drop in 11 days in the last 40 years. So we are seeing it around the globe. We're seeing it in PMIs around the globe. So as the ISM number comes out, I think that's where the risk starts to go a little bit further on this being a problem and the Fed having to look at this and possibly start to turn the other direction. 
And we've talked about your calls for the year and whether or not the S&P and crypto are going to finish up or not. It seems as though even if you have allowed for the fact that we may not ultimately close up for the year, the second half of the year could represent a big improvement over the first half, right? Is it still very much the way you're thinking about things? Without a doubt, because I don't think the Fed is going to tighten aggressively into an obvious slowdown. And then the question will be given to investors. How much of this year was about inflation and how much of this year was about uncertainty over the Fed and the rate hikes that they did? I think inflation is going to fall much quicker than what people believe because of the inventory problem, because of the fact that the input costs are starting to come down. They'll start talking about the fact that some of the inflation data, and this is another debate that I'm having with people, PCE core deflator which as far as I know is the one that we should be watching for the Fed, not the headline CPI number or the core CPI number, but the PCE core deflator peaked around 5.25% in, I think it was February. Currently it's at 4.9. And so we've already made a peak as of this point on PCE core deflator, but most people are talking that it's going to keep accelerating into the third quarter but all I see is stuff coming down, and I think it matters a lot. So I'm going to say the next two months, you should expect dramatic changes in what has worked in the beginning part of the year. I don't expect the stock market to have some big rally over the next two months. And the reason I say that is the earnings are going to be disappointing, and the economy is going to continue to show isn't below 50 and things like that. But you will start hearing, hey, if growth is slowing, and we start to see some inflation numbers coming down in September, in October, and all of a sudden people can get on this, I think they're going to realize, A, there's still money that's sitting out there in cash. Number two, the sentiment is so bearish and people have been positioned for negative stuff that you're going to get a rotation. And if we get into kind of the October, November period, China tailwind, Fed tailwind, I think it's going to be a different story. So I'm still going to stick with the fact that the market's going to rally back in the second half of the year and Bitcoin as well, as I've highlighted in my tweets and stuff, I still believe that's going to come, but I think it's predicated on the fact that there's going to be a turn in the Fed and that the Fed was responsible, the uncertainty for the first half of the year. To conclude, I do want to just ask you a bit more about China. You have been very out front on your view that the animal spirits are being aroused in China could you just talk a little bit about how China potentially can help the U.S. markets and the global markets as we sort of head to the end of the year? On the webinar, I highlighted a few things that I think are important. We forget that a lot of the market weakness, which really began in, in January, February of last year, and I say that not because the equity market went down last year, but that's when the GameStop situation happened. That's when small caps started to underperform large caps. And part of that driving force that we all forget is China was tightening in the first quarter of last year. And so their market peaked and went down really in, and had an impact on the markets here. Animal spirits, again, as a reminder, because people think it just means euphoria or people buying, animal spirits are really something to convince people to get more positive. It's almost like a distraction. Using the stock market going higher to get people to go out and maybe buy a house maybe go out and 
go get a vacation six months from now. In China, I had never heard sentiment this bad because they were scared that they could be shut down again at any point and that the zero COVID policy was a problem. So China's had some advancements in uh, messenger RNA technology, which, as I've said, you should not underestimate the power of it going forward. But more importantly, they've been stimulating and the lockdowns right now are done for the time being and they're letting people travel again. So animal spirits is working where the stock market is going up. And as I highlighted yesterday in the webinar, we're about to break 200-day moving averages on the Shenzhen Composite. The Hang Seng Tech for more international stuff is close. The Shanghai Composite is right at the 200-day. So this is really important and it does matter. Now, one of the interesting things, so in China, you're doing the psychological thing of trying to change behavior through animal spirits, getting people to feel wealthier because the stock market's going up. In the U.S., the exact opposite's been going on for the biggest economy in the world. We've been trying to kill inflation expectations. The Fed is trying to hurt demand to bring down inflation. So in China, they're trying to get people to spend money. In the U.S., they're trying to get people to stop spending money. And you have the number one economy in the world in terms of size going one direction, the number two economy in the world going the other direction. The two combined are responsible for over 70% of annual growth. And I think they'll both be lined up the same way for the final three months of the year. And if that's the case, you can expect much better things because I will remind people the stock market is a discounting mechanism. It goes ahead of the data. And everyone should remember that because of COVID. At the worst part of the economy, the stock market was already going higher. And I believe the worst part of the economy is now about to hit the summer. And I think the bottom will be there. And I'll end on this. When the Fed raised rates in June, as of right now, the day later was the low of the year. So when they did 75, which was not expected over the weekend, they ended up doing 75 on Wednesday. It was expected by the market by Wednesday. The market bottomed the next day. If that holds, everyone will be reminded again that the stock market is a discounting mechanism. Excellent. And I have to say, I think we got kind of a double dose of green marbles today. So I appreciate you bringing your A-game to this one, Jordy. Fascinating conversation. Thank you again. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.